Yes, I, uh, I have an occasional bout with sciatica, and uh, it's kind of come back a little bit, so when I, or if I sit on this stool, I'm not uh, attempting to try to be a megachurch pastor or, or anything like that. I, uh, I, I, my left leg will be burning, and I will be sitting. So, um, so this morning, we're going to look at our relationship with God in the midst of danger. And uh, it's an important thing. I think we all will face some type of danger during our lifetime, maybe multiple times. And uh, if, if we don't face danger, then we do face danger in a sense of the spiritual danger we face every day as we, uh, uh, we do have an enemy, amen, and he, uh, he wants nothing but to destroy the church. And so we are, in a way, in a way daily in danger, but uh, we may face actual physical dangers as well. Um, be in prayer for Troy. He is suffering in Hawaii right now, and, um, and so um, pray that he'll have a safe trip. He'll be back by this Saturday, uh, Friday. Yeah, it better be Friday because uh, there's a wedding happening this Friday, Morgan Wilde and, and Alyssa, and, uh, and if Troy does not arrive, then I'm doing the ceremony, and so uh, nobody wants that. Okay, so, so King David was no stranger to danger, and, uh, and the context of this psalm, according to verse 1, is a, is a crying out to God because David was in a cave uh, hiding from King Saul, his father-in-law, for goodness sakes, who wanted to kill him. Sounds like a, you know, a, a TV drama uh, of, the, of the best kind. Um, so before we get into the psalm, though, I think it's important to briefly look at the history of, of danger David faced from Saul. So I am going to reference some scripture, but I'm not going to ask us to turn there and, and flip through a bunch of passages uh, due to time. But, but it begins in 1 Samuel 18. David had just killed Goliath, and there was this great victory over the Philistine armies. And uh, in verse 7, it says, as the armies were coming home, the women could, would come out of every city and sing, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul, being a very self-absorbed individual, uh, got jealous angry. And in verse 9, it says, and Saul eyed David from that day on. You ever eye somebody? You know, you, you know what that, that is all about. And Saul, you know, lived up to that because he did it for the next 10 years or so. And it didn't uh, help that Saul had an occasional moments of demonic oppression or possession. In one of those moments, in fact, the, the day after they arrived back into Jerusalem, the day after David uh, assumes his previous job of playing the lyre, which is a small harp, uh, to kind of calm the king down when he was having these demonic fits. And Saul tried twice to make David a human spear cushion, which really shows a, a great display of the anger Saul had towards David. It wasn't like David was kind of cranking it up, you know, he's kind of jamming on the lyre, and Saul was like, be quiet, you know, keep it down, or something like that. It was, it was music for the purpose of calming somebody. And not to mention that, but it was also music from David, so it was music that probably was in praise and worship of God. And so Saul met this God-glorifying effort to calm him down with demonic, murderous rage. And so over the, the next eight or nine chapters, we'll just go briefly over it, but you have, first of all, Saul offering his oldest daughter, Merab, to David as a wife. It didn't work out. 
but, but Saul only did it in order to recruit David into the military so he can go off and get killed by the, the, the Philistines. Second thing is Saul offered his youngest daughter, Michael, or Michal, as a bride to David, hoping she would somehow be a snare to him. And then in chapter 19, Saul sent men out to arrest him at least four times. And then you have a third attempt to spear David to the wall in chapter 19. And then in chapter 20, you have Saul attempting to spear his own son, Jonathan, to the wall for defending David. And then it gets worse because in chapter 22, Saul executes 85 priests and their families in a city called Nob for housing David and defending David. And then Saul and his men searching for him daily wherever they were and wherever his whereabouts. In other words, if someone came and said, hey, Saul's in this wilderness, or David's in this wilderness, Saul said, let's get the men and go. And this happened constantly. And then finally, in chapters 24 and 26, Saul took 3,000 chosen men to hunt David down in different situations. To top it off through much of this, David and his men lived in exile, often hiding in, in the wilderness and hiding in caves and, and what are called strongholds, which were not, you know, Hilton's. And at some point, exiled in a cave, David composed Psalm 57. And so we kind of get an idea that David was in real danger, nearly speared three times, anyone close to him or who helped him was getting threatened or killed, being in exile for years, serious danger. But not only in the backstory do we kind of see that David was in real danger, but we see in this psalm also through David's own words, his kind of his take on what he was experiencing. So let's get into it with this point, point number one, and that is this. David was in serious danger. So point number A, point letter A, David describes his current situation like being in storms of destruction. Okay, so David starts by describing his situation like being in storms of destruction. He says in verse 1, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. And this statement of storms of destruction not only have to do with kind of destructive forces, but it has to do with wickedness. The word is used interchangeably throughout the Old Testament to mean either destructive situations or wickedness. And I think David really kind of has both in mind when he says, you know, these storms basically are trials in life that come from wicked intentions and are meant to do great harm to a person. And that's obvious that Saul and his men were wicked and hunting down this most faithful of men and trying to destroy him out of sheer jealousy and anger. The second part, letter B, is David describes the source of his danger as coming from or being very violent men. Okay, so David first says in verse 4 that he is in the middle of lions. You know, we're generally taught the Daniel and the lion's den story in, in, you know, when we're children or in children's ministry. And so you don't really think of the possibilities of, of the effects it probably had on him physically if he was dropped into a pit in the middle of 
hungry lions. But when you think about that, that has to, I mean, that had to have been, I don't care how much Daniel exercised faith in that situation, no doubt that God delivered him, no doubt he said, you know, that the Lord sent his angels to deliver me and that sort of thing. But I don't think Daniel dropped in there and said, oh, lions, hmm, I'm a follower of Yahweh, you know. I'm sure there was a panic moment. I'm sure there was a little fighting off of the nerves. And I don't know if anyone here has necessarily been in a situation where you've been surrounded by such violent people that you would label them as lions, but David says that. He says, I am in the midst of dangerous people. David then goes on to describe these dangerous men as fiery beasts. And the idea is kind of they breathe out fire or they were set on fire. It's kind of just a fearsome image. And it goes on, it says, whose teeth are spears and arrows. And to coin a phrase, they were armed to the teeth. Sorry, that was bad, 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 bad joke. But uh, they were armed to the teeth. Their, their teeth are like spears and arrows, you know. And, and, uh, and so they were, they were weaponized. And then he goes on to say, whose, whose tongues were sharp swords. And so these were violent men who, when they spoke about David or towards David, they were always using violent speech. So the third thing, letter C, is David describing or Dave describes the danger. So in verse 3, he says, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. That word tramples, in the King James, it says swallows up. And that's really, a, I think, a better image because the idea is to, to chase and to overcome someone. And we know there was at least one situation where Saul and his men were chasing David, and it says that David was on one side of a mountain and Saul was on another side, and it says, but when the men almost caught up to David, then a messenger comes in and says, we're under attack by the Philistines, and so Saul had to run away and deal with the protection of Israel. But it says that they were almost swallowing up David and his men. Then he goes on to say, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way. They have fallen into it themselves. And this net pit idea are basically just traps used for animals. So you ever notice for the most part in in those adventure movies, you've seen the ones, the, the good ones, where the hero is kind of facing a field full of booby traps. You know, he's kind of standing there, you know, the music is kind of intensifying and he's looking and he's seen looking for triggers and steps and everything like that. He's not going, huh. You know, he doesn't just take kind of a casual stroll across the field that he knows is full of booby traps. And so if David is saying that daily or regularly, these people are setting traps for me, they're digging pits for me, that makes your days fairly stressful for what was probably a stretch of at least 10 years. You get up in the morning and say, Dave, how you doing? Well, there's probably several nets set for me today, a few pits. Next day, hey, Dave, how's it going? Well, there's probably some nets set up for me and a few pits. And he's probably just kind of this all the time. 
But the good news is, and that is point number two, and that is this, but David knew the Lord. (laughs) David knew the Lord. And here's where we learn that having a relationship with God truly changes everything about being in dangerous situations. And this is the, 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 the icing on the cake, the, the very good news for us. So point number A is this, dangerous situations are opportunities to proclaim the mercy of God. In verse 1, David says, be merciful to me. O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. Dangerous situations, and this is important, dangerous situations are not opportunities to present your credentials to God for why he should rescue you. They're not. Oh God, my, you know, I just got a note from the IRS. God, you know I've been going to church. God, you know I serve in the heights. God, you know I haven't yelled at my spouse or my kids in days. No, dangerous, tense, nervous situations are not our chance to kind of roll out the scroll and say, hear ye, hear ye, this is how I am so righteous and therefore God must deliver me. This psalm was certainly written down before David's big sin with Bathsheba, no doubt about that, and the, and the evil set of decisions that he made after that sin. But when David was captured in his sin by the prophet Nathan, in David's psalm written in response to that exposing of a sin that Nathan did, in Psalm 51, David says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother did conceive me. That wasn't something that just was a response necessarily to a sinful moment that David had. That was David just spitting out his theology. He understood that from the very beginning, he was a sinner who in every situation needed the mercy of God. Now, you might say, well, well, David said, I mean, come on, Bill. David said in verse 1 of our psalm this morning, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I mean, isn't that, I mean, isn't that a flex of his credentials, that he trusts in the Lord and so the Lord should have mercy? And the answer is no. If David is aware of his sin and, and there is substantial evidence he is, then trusting in the Lord is a, is a declaration of God's mercy. It's also, on a side note, a declaration that David was in a right relationship with the Lord. A person who is in a right relationship with God is one who is completely convinced of two things. And here are those two things. Number one, I'm a filthy scumbag. I am a filthy scumbag. Isaiah 64, 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So we say, okay, God, I've attended church faithfully for years. Polluted garment. I pray a lot. Polluted garment. Because these are our righteous deeds. I tithe and give of my salary. Polluted garment. See, 
A person who is in a right relationship with God has a right understanding of themselves. They are sinners. They are a filthy scumbag. But second is this. God is unbelievably merciful to save me from sin. So he must also be unbelievably merciful to allow me to trust in him. So by David saying, you know, God, I take refuge in you, he's not flexing his credentials saying, you know, I am one who takes refuge in God. No, he's saying that God saved me from heinous, horrible sin. That God must say, come on, trust me. It is mercy that saves us from sin, and it is mercy that allows us to be able to go into his presence in the first place and trust him at all. As Psalm 25, 6 says, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. So David got it because he was in a right relationship with the Lord. Point B, dangerous situations are opportunities to proclaim the greatness of God. How did David, in Psalm 57, proclaim the greatness of God? Point number one, God is greater than caves. So where was David when he wrote this psalm, we think? In a cave. David was in a cave. And it might be an argument from silence, but David never calls the cave a refuge. Yet he's writing while in a cave. Now, there's a real possibility, we, we, we think, from studying and looking at things, that uh, the cave David was in at this time maybe was the cave of Adulam, or Adulam, depends on who you, you ask, what source. And, and we know from 1 Samuel 22 that David took refuge there. So we have biblical evidence that Dave was in the cave of Adulam, you know, kind of there with his men and that sort of thing. And this was quite the cave. I watched a YouTube video on this, and the internet never lies. So I, I watched a YouTube video on, on someone just kind of, you know, strolling through this cave. And, and, and it was high on a hill. I mean, way high. And so you could kind of go to the main entrance of this cave, and, and you could see for miles. So, you know, if someone's coming after you, you know they're coming. So that's one advantage. There are multiple entrances and exits to this cave. And so it wasn't like, you know, if we get in here, we're done for if they come through the same entrance. The cave was very deep and you could kind of go through a tight spot and then all of a sudden you're in a giant area. So there are many large open areas. We know that David had approximately 400 men with him, with their families and that sort of thing. And so you're kind of thinking, you know, uh, that's, that's a big crowd. So the cave, you know, for all intents and purposes, was a very strategic refuge. But while even in this refuge, David says, my soul takes refuge in God. He said, I might be in a very strategic refuge. I might be in a very strategic cave, but this is not my refuge. He is my refuge. So the question for us kind of becomes, do you find yourself trusting in a cave? You know, my brains are, 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 you know, I'm a smart dude or dudette, and so my brains are, are going to get me out of this situation. Or, uh, you know, my wealth will protect me from danger. 
Or, you know, I've got connections, and so, you know, if I have a problem here or a problem there, I know who to go to for any situation ahead. Or, or you know, my cousin is a lawyer. Can you say like David says in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Can you say that about yourself? Or do you trust in your chariots or your horses? It's a big challenge. Point number two, God is greater than his enemies. So verse three, he says, he will put to shame him who tramples on me, Selah. It's another one of those words, Selah, Selah. Selah, you've, you've heard different pronunciations, depends on who you ask. As long as you say it, I like what Adam uh, Rhodes told me one time, if you say it with confidence, then that's the way you pronounce it. So, Selah. Verse 6, he says, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. So these two verses really show kind of in a, in a really unique way, I think, that, that when David said, he will put to shame, or he says, they dug a pit, but they have fallen into it, he's, he's not just speaking from wishful thinking. He's not saying, you know, this hasn't happened yet, but it will. And say, well, what do you mean? Well, depending on when this psalm was written, if David is in a cave, there's a, a real good chance that this psalm was written after one, maybe both of those times that, that David caught Saul red-handed. If you remember the story, the first time Saul was hunting down David with his men, and then he had to, for lack of a better term, go to the bathroom, and so he goes into a cave, and as he's using the restroom, David kind of sneaks up, and I don't know how, but trims a little bit of the guy's robe off. And then David is kind of walking away and he's feeling convicted about that. And Saul and his men are kind of leaving, saying, ah, he got away again. You know, and they're kind of leaving. And David, from a distance, you know, hollers out to Saul and says, you know, oh, king, you know, why are you doing this? And, and he goes on through this thing. We're not going to necessarily read the passage. But then there's the second time where Saul and his men were after David again. And it's nighttime and they go to sleep. And the, even the, the chief guard that's in charge of Saul's armies is there. And he's asleep as well. And while he's supposed to be watching David. And David sneaks up and takes Saul's spear. And I think a, a, a cup of some sorts. And we see in the second time kind of. Just, just to be brief, the, that, that Saul's response gives a, at least a, a temporary moment of Saul's remorse over what he is doing. He says, I have sinned. He's talking back to David, who David's kind of up on a hill, hollering down to him to make sure that David doesn't get a spear thrown at him again or anything like that. And so Saul says, I have sinned. He says, return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And so Saul probably at least temporarily expressed shame over pursuing David and seeking to kill him. Now, let's, let's take that to this passage here and let's use this word salah, okay? We, we technically don't know the, the definition of salah, salah, okay? 
Some say it's either a kind of a musical mark that if you were a musician at that time, you would be playing along. We have all these funny little comments at the top of our music that say, you know, with vigor, you know, or something like that, you know, uh, but, but they would go and they'd see Salah and say, okay, let's raise the tempo a little bit or, or something like that. It could be a, a musical mark of some kind. I kind of lean towards the idea of that this word is kind of a musical pause because it really has a, a Salah really in some verbally dramatic moments, you know? And, and so I think it's kind of a, a pause and I'm saying I think, so, you know, don't, don't hold me to this completely, but, but I think it's a, it's lost in, lost in time, but I think it's a pause to kind of think on what was just sung or said. So let's apply that to this. And let's just say that David wrote this psalm at least after one, maybe two of those episodes with Saul. So David writes in verse three, he will put to shame him who tramples on me. Salah. So he pauses for a moment and he remembers how Saul was put to shame. He says, God is faithful. And then he writes in verse six, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Salah. And he remembers how Saul fell into his own pit since his life was put into the hands of David. And we can take really great comfort from this, that this is not a person who's, who is trying to encourage us with some positive possibilities. You know, just saying, one day God's going to deliver you. And we're like, yeah. No, David knew that God was greater than his enemies because he experienced it. Because he stood and looked down at Saul's sleeping body. And then the third thing is this. God is greater, period. How is God greater, period? Point A. God is sovereign. Verse two, he says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. So that statement, God most high, El Elyon. If you have ever done one of those studies of the names of God, that's the name that's here, El Elyon. And, and this name really has to do with God as Lord over creation. Probably the most popular use of the term is in Genesis 14 where Melchizedek is the priest of Salem, the high priest of God Most High, and he comes out to meet Abraham after Abraham is coming back after a war. And in Genesis 14, verses 18 and 19, it says, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, he was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, he's blessing Abraham, and said, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And so God most high is someone who owns the earth and the sky, which is why in verse five and verse 11, it says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. And so this is really not a situation where God is low and, and David is somehow praying him up, like be exalted, O God, You're, what are you doing down here? 
No, this is an acknowledgement of God's high position. You are exalted. You are exalted above the heavens. And then he's calling for the earth. He's saying, let your glory be over all the earth. He's saying, hey, earth, his glory is over you. In other words, God, you are exalted. Let, in other words, allow. You are the sovereign God. Allow the world to recognize this. But not only that, God is sovereign over the ways of man. David also says in verse 2, I cry out to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Charles Spurgeon says, the man in danger has cogent reason for praying, for he sees God performing. The believer waits and God works. The Lord has undertaken for us, and he will not draw back. He will go through with his covenant engagements. And so God works all things together for good would be a kind of our New Testament promise, kind of similar to this in Romans eight twenty eight that God works all things together for good, and he leaves no reason. God leaves no reason to think he will stop doing so. He fulfills his purposes for us. Second thing is God is trustworthy. Now, any sane person in David's situation would say, you know, you know, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little anxious right now. You know, I'm a, little, I'm a little troubled about my father-in-law wanting to kill me. So how can David in verse 7 say, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast, and it's because of the previous verses. He, he proved he can handle dangers like lions. God proved he can handle fiery beasts and spears and arrows and swords. The Lord proves he could handle nets and pits. He shows that he can do this because he is higher than all things, exalted above the heavens. He is the one who can anchor the anxious heart and move it to a place of steadfastness, which that word means to cause to stand which is, I think, a beautiful contrast here because David's soul, according to verse 6, says was bowed over. And the idea is kind of bowed over in defeat and crushing. And then all of a sudden he says, my heart is steadfast. I'm not bowed over any longer. I'm standing straight. And then point C, God is worthy of praise. By the end of verse 7 to the end of the chapter, the danger is pretty much not even mentioned. It's all but gone. And, and that's kind of typical of a, a psalm from David. He kind of starts off wallowing in misery, and then he just launches into the greatness of God. And all of a sudden, the misery kind of disappears. Now, I say all but gone because, you know, we know David was still in danger. He didn't just leave the cave and say, I'm, I'm going back to Jerusalem now. He faced more dangers, but, but by verse 7, David is so swept up in the majesty of God that nothing else matters. Verse 7, he says, I will sing and make melody. Verse 8, he says, I wake my glory. In other words, let all of what's best in me be alert at this moment. That's what he means by awake my glory. He's not talking about God as if God is taking a nap or anything like that. He's saying my glory. In other words, anything that is glorious about me, my, my intellect, my, my mind, my heart, all these things, be alert, awake. For this moment, we are about to have a large, huge, dare I say, Pentecostal-esque worship service. 
So be awake. And now David is set. So he said he's, a, he's about to sing and make melody. He has commanded all that he is to be ready for the moment. He has his instruments because in verse 8 he says, Awake, O harp and lyre. Then he goes on to say, I will awake the dawn. That basically means I'm going to get up at O dark 30. I'm going, to say, I'm going to beat the dawn to waking up. So he has his instruments, he's gotten up before the dawn, and now there's this, there's this explosion of worship that is not in any way, shape, or form in the privacy of his home. No, he says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So for the person who knows God, and this is, this is the landing of the plane. So for the person who knows God, dangerous situations because of God do not have to be opportunities for our destruction. God is merciful to his people. But he is not only merciful, he is loving and faithful as well. And God shows us these things through his power over all things. And this results in, in our trusting in him, which results in our telling of his greatness to the world. Notice that. Dangerous situations for the Christian become opportunities for world evangelization. Wow. Which basically, think about this, this causes the, the wicked intentions of these trials in our life to be flipped on their head because people get saved and believers get inspired when we as believers in Christ rightly respond to danger. Can you imagine Saul's coming in and all he's thinking about is, I want David dead. And David writing this psalm today is inspiring us to be alive. Saul failed miserably. Saul's wicked intentions, my goodness, are pathetic. Which is very encouraging to us because I know when we find ourselves in dangerous situations, we can often make molehills into mountains and mountains into mountain ranges. But let's get the, the long view of this thing, folks. Let's, let's think biblically about this in our relationship with God that my story, though not Scripture, but my story would challenge my children, my children's children, or my next-door neighbor, or someone to respond to the gospel because we will tell them my marriage was, was on the rocks, but God graciously delivered my marriage, and it's a beautiful thing now. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? My, my, my taxes were whew, a disaster, but God graciously brought faithful people to my side, and just, I could just see his hand working through the situation, and, and I've been pulled out of that, not calling one of those 1-800-get-free-of-taxes, you know, let's punch the IRS in the face companies. Whatever your situation, whatever danger you may face, whatever struggle you may face, God in his mercy loves his people with his faithfulness and his everlasting chesed love. 
His steadfast love, and he saves. And if he doesn't save, it doesn't matter because we get swept up into his glory in such a way that other than the, other than the problem, if people looked at our face and people looked at how we live our days and people looked at our decisions and people looked at us as we somehow sing in the middle of tra- tragedy and torture, other than the problem, we're fine. We are absolutely fine because of God's great mercy. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for the opportunity to study your word. I pray, oh God, that you will continue, Father, to move by your spirit in our hearts, Lord. Perhaps there's someone here, Lord, that is really in a dangerous situation. It may not be David's danger. I doubt it is. I don't think any of us are living in a cave and being chased by people to kill us. But we do face dangers. We do face times of uncertainty. We do face nervous moments. I pray, oh God, that you will encourage the hearts of those people today to be swept up into your glory, to not deny their their problems necessarily, give them great wisdom for those things. But God, I pray that they will not see those things for any worse than they are but also see you for all that you are. And may you be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and may your glory be all over this church. May your glory be all over the earth, Lord. May we see your glory in all things and tell others about these things, Lord. And so, God, help us to examine ourselves as well and to see if we're trusting in caves, to see if we are not trusting in you, O God, and then lead us to repentance if we are. And I pray that you will just uh, be with those as well, Father, who may not know you as Lord and Savior. Pray, O God, that you would help them to stop being people who trust in chariots and in horses, Lord. But they will remember your name and they will confess their sin and they will find forgiveness of sin and redemption through your Son. Pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.